when you have a job like this, you're playing for all kinds of people for many different reasons. And my ideas about uh, performance have changed a lot in, in a positive way for me uh, since I've had this job. Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 168 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. Today's special guest on the program is Kristen Mather D'Andrade. She's a clarinetist with the prestigious West Point Band and recently released her debut album called Clarao. We discuss what it's like performing, arranging, and even recording Brazilian music both on clarinet and voice. She's actually singing on this album as well, which is truly amazing. We also talk about what it's like playing with a military band day to day and much more. If this is your first time listening to the program, welcome, and I do hope that you'll consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, anywhere else that you can find it online. Um, also, if you do find that you're enjoying the show and you want access to more of it and without ads, you can get access to an ad-free extended version of the program at clarineat.com join. Thank you to all those who support the show directly, and thank you also to our sponsors for making the show possible. Thanks for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at bakunmusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Crowder Giuffredi, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. So I'm here today with Kristen Mather D'Andrade. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Kristen. Hey, yeah, I'm really happy to be here. I'm a fan of your podcast, so it's a special treat for me to talk to you today. It's great to chat with you. And I always love chatting with musicians who are doing things that are, are interesting and unique and you're kind of on the periphery of what a normal, I say normal with quotes here, but <laughs> clarinetist <laughs> tends to do it themselves. So I'm so interested to talk to you today, not only about your career path and some of the things that you've done on the way, but I also look forward to talking with you about your new album project called Clarao, which is featuring, of course, Brazilian music. So let's get started a little bit, talk about you as a clarinet player, get to know you a little bit, and then all the way up to your new CD project, how that got started, and all about how you started playing Brazilian music. Uh, so I guess I can just start from the beginning. I, I grew up in a small city in Ohio, and I was lucky that it was a city very close to where Robert Marcellus spent the majority of his performing career. So uh, my teacher was a longtime um, student of Marcellus all the way through his high school time. And then he went to Northwestern, followed him to Northwestern and did a, his first, Marcellus's first four years there. My teacher went with him. So I was very lucky to have that great kind of foundation and obviously like for American clarinet players, Marcellus is kind of like this, the sound is like everything that people are going for. And obviously things are changing now, but like, especially when I was younger, it was like, everyone was like Marcellus, 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 you know? So it was great to have him. And then like, just the, 
I think like the very basics of technique and everything that come along with that, I think have served me well throughout my career, whatever kind of music I wanted to play. So that was great. And then, you know, I ended up going to school in that area in Ohio and moved out to Chicago for my master's studies with Larry Combs, which is also an amazing experience for me. And I think that was, you know, working with both my teacher in undergrad, Robert Fitzer, and working with Larry, they were both very serious. Clarinet is obviously like orchestrally minded, their training is in that um, line, but then both of them also were like really interested in other styles of music. And I actually had chances to like hear Larry Combs play jazz at a club when I was living in Chicago and stuff. So it also kind of gave me those first seeds of like, yeah, I can like train to work towards this kind of traditional path that clarinetists take of orchestral clarinet playing. But then also there's like these other options for how you can play and express yourself and share music with people. So it was really, it was good for me, both of them. Do you have any specific stories about studying with, with either of them or both of them that you could share on the podcast? <laughs> yeah, so many, but I, I think Robert Fitzer, who he's passed away now, but he made a really big impact on a lot of the students that I went to school with. And, you know, a lot of the people that I studied with is very small school in Youngstown, Ohio, like had like maybe 15 people in the studio at the most. And all the people that he had a chance to work with, like many of them were, have gone on to performing careers or like having like big teaching jobs and stuff. So he was like very invested in his students and like very interested in us succeeding, not for him, but for us, you know, which was a great feeling. And um, that was very important to have at that age, somebody who was like really interested in like knowing like your goals, helping you figure out your goals, making, you know, making those hard calls too, when like you think that you you don't need this thing or this thing, but he's like, no, like you're really going to need this. You're going to need to work on this. And so I think it was like the perfect tough love situation where you're like, you're really working hard, getting better at the instrument, really that perfect, like college time of exploring different things, but, um, doing so in a supportive environment with a bunch of other students that were like all on the train with you. I would just say overall his, his, uh, his teaching style was very uh, formative for me. And then working with Larry was just, I mean, it's, it was huge for me. It was uh, somebody I had heard for a long time, you know, like I had, I had gotten his like little orchestral excerpts CD to study my excerpts with. And obviously I'd heard a bunch of Chicago recordings and, you know, everyone was like, this is the person. And like, here I was like sitting in a room with him and, it was just great to see, like, even though I had, like, had kind of put him in this, like, status of, like, extra special clarinetist to sit in a room and, like, know that, like, you know, what he cares about is, like, can you play, like, a simple tune beautifully? Can you, like, talk with him about the clarinet? Do you have interest outside of playing Beethoven 6? Like, he was a very, like, rounded clarinet player, and he wasn't as, like... um serious as I had like thought he would be in my head so again it's just like yeah you can have excellence and you can strive for that but then also just like be a human and like try to play pretty and all this stuff you know it's like it's it was a good experience for me too working with him so when you say something piqued my interest there you said he wanted to be able to just sit and talk clarinet with you what, what do you mean by that I mean I don't know what it would have been like to study in undergrad with him but going in for a master's degree it's like wanted to talk about like what do you like playing like 
you know, who, who you're listening to, like things like that were just as much of a lesson as actually playing for him as well, you know? So I think that was important too, just to, for me to think about what do I like and why do I want to sound the way I want to sound? And yeah, I think at that point it's just as important to talk about it and think about those things as it is to practice it, you know? Absolutely. No, I like that because I often tell students at music workshops that I do, and, and I work generally at these kind of workshops with younger students. They're like, you know, 12 to maybe 17, 18 kind of thing. And so many times you ask them a question about just the instrument, like, oh, you know, they don't know how to improve their sound. Well, what do you want to sound like? Who do you want to sound like? Why do you want to sound like that? They have no idea. And so I think that that's such an interesting point is like there's a, an important part of being a clarinetist, which which needs to be just sitting down and being interested in the clarinet, you know listening to this podcast, <laughs> um, reading books about clarinet and, and thinking about the clarinet and listening to other clarinet players, right? Yeah, I think for sure. And even now, like, I'm sure now as a professional, you know, too, it's like, I don't put the same amount of like FaceTime on practicing as I did when I was younger, but I'm definitely like thinking about like, oh, like, how do I want to phrase that thing? Like later on when I get home and I have my time to practice or something like, you know, thinking about phrases, hearing stuff on the radio and like, the practicing happens in the mind too, as much as it does like on your face. You Got to write that down. The practicing happens <laughs> in the mind. <laughs> I like that. It's so true though. There was a time period in my life too, where I lived in a really kind of small apartment in a, in a building with the walls were like paper thin. And I was subbing a lot with the local orchestra back then. And, uh, you see the practicing happens in the mind, but it's so true. Cause I would sit down with my clarinet in one hand, it'd be like 1130 at night and I couldn't really play. So I would just go through the music quietly and mark things down. And to my surprise, always the next morning, whenever I tried to actually play it at a time when I could, it went so much easier than if I just sat down and, you know, tried to make my way through it relentlessly for, you know, hours on end kind of thing, right? Listening to the music and, and doing, doing that kind of sort of focused practice with, without the actual playing, which is kind of, kind of weird to think about. But so speaking of listening to other clarinetists, um, everyone listening to this podcast today should definitely check out your album. So let's talk a little bit about this recording um, that you did and, and also the unique sort of music that you ended up um, deciding to record. Yeah, so it, it was kind of a, a long journey for me to get to this point, but a fun one full of strange opportunities. And, uh, you know, I was just happy that I had the opportunities and I would catch them, but I guess almost 11 years ago, I, um, I met my husband who's Brazilian and I was like, okay, I'm going to like start learning some Brazilian songs to try to learn Portuguese. And then I started learning some like instrumental music just to like learn more about the culture and stuff. I had been playing various Brazilian styles over a few years and then in 2016, when the Olympics happened in Rio, I did like a mini uh, live stream with some of my um, friends at West Point. And for some reason, I was just like popular moment in time. Um, people really picked up on it and I was getting like thousands and thousands of comments and like people were like, watching it like crazy to the point where the like national newspaper in Brazil, like picked up the story and like did an interview with me and like, everybody's like, why are you doing this stuff? <laughs> kind of a weird moment for me. Cause it's like, I was just doing it. Cause like, I kind of care about, you know, what you guys have going on down there. I want to know more about the country and this is, you know, something I do. So it's a good way for me to figure out more about the country. So 
I reached out to this group that I belong to, Women in Music. It's an organization that um, it's a great organization, by the way, for any people that identify um, as female. If they're looking for support or just advice, um, you should have, definitely check it out. And I kind of said, like, hey, like this weird thing happened. Is there anyone here that has any experience working with Brazilian music artists or having released any Brazilian music? And I happened to get an email back from this um, producer who kind of discovered the Gypsy Kings and stuff like that. And he was like, hey, like, I have a lot of experience in this. Um, I spend a lot of time in Brazil. Like, what's going on? And I told him the story and... He hooked me up with the producer of my album, who is a Brazilian man who was living in Brooklyn at the time that we started working on music together. So with him and then the rest of the band that he put together, we played some gigs, you know, just kind of working together, feeling things out. And over time, ended up choosing the music that we were going to put on the album and we started recording. So it's kind of the process of getting to why did I record Brazilian music not to mention this is like my first album ever and I just skipped over all of the other training that I had as a classical clarinetist and went straight for Brazilian music. So that's kind of the path that led me there. And I think the, re the reason I chose a lot of the music was because it was lesser known here in the U.S. I wanted to bring some of the things that I had learned about and inspired me along the way to this album. You know, I love the you know little connection there to the Gypsy Kings. My daughter loves that music. She's always <laughs> dancing around to it upstairs, and uh, and uh, it's so like active. There's like a lot of clapping and and really kind of fast rhythms that go on to that. <laughs> yeah. So so what is it about playing Brazilian music that you found that you enjoy so much? And what are some ways that I mean, you mentioned that it's quite different than playing classical music, but how so? And and how did you master these techniques? A lot of jazz musicians will tend to like gravitate towards some of the genres that I put on this album. But one of the things about the music that I learned about through just playing it a bit and, you know, reading about it, some of the style Choro, that's C-H-R-O-R-O, -R -O, it's kind of like a contemporary of ragtime, more or less, in the U.S. So even if you think about playing ragtime, a lot of that's like fully notated. People are playing it with like a very specific style. There's rules and structure to it. Um, and so it didn't feel like that's like weird or different for me to play in that style. You know, I think we also too, as classical musicians in general, like we have experience playing cadenzas and experience like doing different kinds of, um, like ornaments and stuff like that. So it's not like we don't ever improvise, you know, I think we just usually, you know, we think improviser like, okay, like bebop and Dixieland and stuff. And it, we don't necessarily think about the stuff that we also do as classical musicians. I'm saying we very generally for, I don't know who everyone in the world. <laughs> but, um, and I guess I should add to, I, I do have experience playing pop music, like, and playing in big bands and stuff. So it wasn't like it was like, a total new thing is just playing music from a different country. And the more you listen to it, just like anything else, and the more you play it. And, you know, obviously like I had this experience of playing with all these Brazilian musicians, you know, the more you play with them, the more you feel like you're fitting into the style and understanding how they're improvising and, you know, trying to meet them in some place with it as well. So I think that was like the main thing for me is just like the more I play with them, more I listen and, and, have that experience, the more I felt like I could meet the style. 
That's amazing. And so how do you think other people could try to get into this type of music? Is there some of this that's been arranged for other clarinetists to, to play now? Can, can you buy these arrangements? The arrangements... Probably not. Although if anyone really wants to see them, they can just send me a message and I'd be happy to send them. But um, a lot of them are kind of like in the jazz tradition where you could get a lead sheet of one of the songs and, um, you know, kind of make your own arrangement. A few of the tunes, like maybe two or three of the tunes on this album are like that, where you can um, you can just like kind of play from a lead sheet if you find it online. But then there's kind of like a couple big band sounding ones that would be a little bit harder to totally match the way that we're playing. But if, again, you want to like play with the album or something, I'm happy to send you the parts. So they're a little bit more specialized for this project, even though you could play like from a real book or something, which they do exist. There's a lot of them um, online, actually, just like you could buy a real book of uh, American jazz. So actually, when I was listening to the album, I have to say I really like the sort of atmosphere. It's very... Uh... You can hear clearly all the different voices. So was it was it kind of layered or did you perform all at the same time or separate rooms or how do they achieve that sound? We actually did record in the same room, more or less. We did all the big band stuff in one day and there's only one trick to that one. I did record within that day, but it was mostly just for um, them to hear the way that I wanted to play the stuff. And then like later on, I went in and, and overdubbed the clarinet parts because it was kind of in a weird room. It wasn't like a perfect scenario. Um, but yeah, we had the horns kind of in one room together, all four horns. And then we had the rhythm section kind of in the biggest room. And they had like more or less, there were boards in between them, but they were still together. Like they isolated them a little bit, but not a lot. And then myself and the uh, percussion were in another room. And again, we did our parts again later on. Um, so it could be more clear. But then the other tunes that are just myself and the rhythm section, we just recorded those in a, they recorded in the big room and I sat in a smaller room by myself. Same with the vocals. I, I recorded those all isolated from the rest of the band, but they played all together. And so this was your first kind of solo album recording experience, right? How did it feel? A little bit nerve wracking, but also not that weird. I, I've done a lot of uh, ensemble recording before. And so the only thing that felt more stressful about this was it was my money and like all the all my resources. So I like wanted to make sure that everything was happening on time. And, you know, that we were getting as close to what we were hoping to get from the situation. Um, you know, when you're recording somebody else's ensemble, it's like, you're just having fun. And when it's your own thing, you're like, I got to make this work the way I want it to work. So I think that was really the big difference for me. Because I guess for me, I remember when I recorded my first CD project and, uh, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, I guess you're there and you trusted the people you've you've hired to work with. I mean, our producer was great, but I just felt like I always had to have a second kind of set of ears to just make sure everything was sort of going as I'd hoped. And, and uh, it was hard to relax in that sense, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So maybe the second time it would be a bit different in that way. But one thing I was interested in, too, is I was listening to your recording and uh, there was singing on there, too. And I looked into, well, who's singing? And I realized you're singing. So this is not just a clarinet album. You're also um, performing as a vocalist on there, which is really, really cool. So tell me about that. I have been singing for kind of a long time. Um, and when I was in college and even before, I would sometimes sing with like some jazz combos and stuff. But just for fun, you know, I wasn't really being serious about it. 
And then it was really when I started um, learning some of the music in Portuguese that I started taking my voice a little more seriously. Uh, you know, living in New York, it's a great opportunity to find a bunch of like people to work with. There, I, I had a chance to work with a woman who sang with Joe Beam's band in the 80s. So like, you know, uh, learning pronunciation from her. And then I had opportunity to learn also with like more classically trained vocalists. And, and I think all of these things did affect my voice. Obviously, it just became stronger. And I had more tools for making sure I can do what I wanted to do with my voice. But I think it also kind of helped my clarinet playing. Um, in particular, just more feeling more freedom with my clarinet playing that I was, you know, that I was feeling with my voice. So um, I think over time, the two have felt more even than they did at first. So that's that was a bonus as well for me. And with the recording for that, did you record the clarinet, the vocals on separate days or like, because I imagine a bit of difficulty warming up the clarinet and also the voice on the same kind of, you know, afternoon would be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I did all of the vocals with the band, but not like full voice. And then I went in after they were finished and kind of overdubbed, you know, with a rough mix. So that way I wasn't um, feeling like I had to sing over and over again with them. So you mentioned that originally to your, your broadcast, there's a lot of comments and a lot of interest in feedback and uh, interest in the Brazilian news. How has the reception for the album been? You know, actually, I didn't even really release it in Brazil. So, I mean, to be totally frank, like trying to release music and have publicists and everything is like super expensive. So I just did a release here in the U.S. and I figured maybe in the next album I'll do in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I can relate. You get the album done and you look around, you're like, wait a minute. Now what? <laughs> you got to get it everywhere. And it's it's uh, distribution. But, you know, distribution is, is interesting now because there's so much that's done online. I don't know if you found this, but when I printed the CDs off, this was six years ago. So, I mean, this was even even more when CDs were still somewhat normal, but they're totally gone now. But I remember printing them all up and even people who'd helped me out on Kickstarter to finish the project, they said, oh, you know, I don't really want a CD. Can you just send me the link to Spotify or whatever? <laughs> and I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. Now I got all these CDs. So... So it is, it's, it's in a way it's nice though, because some people I'm sure all over the world are listening who otherwise would never have been able to sort of get a copy of the CD. So it's, it's kind of a double edged sword, if that's the right term for that, I suppose. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, you said you had live streamed this concert in sort of a unique new way. And I thought maybe that would have given people all over the world the chance to tune in, but maybe, maybe tell me a bit about that. Yeah. So I held like a, kind of like a release concert type thing from the studio where I actually recorded the album, um, studio 42 in Brooklyn. And it's a great studio. They have like full service there, which is so nice. You can have video and audio all mixed and looking great from the space. Um, but then a friend of mine, uh, is starting this new venture where basically, um, you can fill up this platform that he has with like a bank of images and colors and styles that, you choose ahead of time The you know, the musician chooses ahead of time. And then during the performance, people can kind of like, well, kind of compete for the image that they want to have appear on the screen in the performance space. So we had a projector and a screen 
where we were playing and then people that were watching the live stream were basically choosing like the imagery that was going on the screen from the bank of images that we chose and a lot of the stuff i chose is uh, stuff from from brazil and some animations um that matched some of the music that we had been performing so kind of accentuated the performance and people could also kind of contribute artistically to the performance as well instead of just sending comments in so it was really neat and it was a great chance for people to you know especially people who don't live in brazil to see some of the imagery that um that could give you more of a feel for where the music is coming from so that's really cool as you're listening because i mean a lot of these applications have a means to kind of give a like or a heart or happy face or whatever to float on the screen but none that i know of really allow you to influence the actual performance space. So that's a really, really cool sort of idea. What What's this called, this service or this application? Yeah, it's stretto.live. And um, a friend of mine from West Point, actually, he's just about to retire. And uh, he, he started this company recently, and we were the first to use it in a live stream performance like this. So it was a really fun experience. It sounds really interesting. I wonder what kind of other applications people will sort of come up with for that sort of thing. It's really, really cool. I love the integration between um, visual art and uh, even just lighting and in music. I think that it's something that a lot of classical musicians especially really sort of overlook. And uh, but it's something you can even, even if you're a student, you can it's something you can play with. When I did my junior recital and senior recital, they had the option to do a lot of different lighting things. And so I played the, uh, the, uh, the birds movement from the Messian Quartet for the End of Time. And uh, I remember I just had my little music stand, a little table, and just a spotlight that was like blue or something on me for the whole performance. It was, otherwise, it was completely dark in there. I remember afterwards, a lot of people were like, I didn't know we could request lighting changes for our recital. And I'm like, well, you can. Something to think about. But it's one of those things, if you don't think about it, you won't think about it, right? Yeah, I think too now. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of immersive experience type of things that people are doing. So maybe it's there's going to be more of it coming in the future. Well, I think there's this false perception or notion too, in my opinion, that some of this stuff is, I don't mean this in any offense at all, but some of this stuff might be considered sort of gimmicky by some people, but I completely disagree because, you know, you go to a, a pop concert or an, like, let's look at opera. <laughs> opera is a pers- uh, perfect example of melding visual with music and no one ever doubts the authenticity of that. So why is it somehow frowned upon to to think about these things as, as musicians? Um, pop music has embraced this long ago with different lighting for different songs and, you know, professional lighting people that tour with rock bands and a little bit of that smoke or whatever that goes in the room. And, and, uh, it just really elevates what's happening on the stage. And it's, I think it'd be something great for, for more people to sort of, uh, check out. So I guess if you want to check that out and interact a little bit visually with your audience that's streaming on your concert, um, you can check out that Stretto. You said it was Stretto dot, uh, was it dot com? Dot live. Dot live, stretto.live. So S-T-R-E-T-T-O dot live. Yep. Perfect. I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes as well. So I also want to talk a little bit about what it's like to play in a military band. You mentioned that you're in West Point, which is one of the premier ensembles, uh, military ensembles in the States. So can we touch on that just a little bit? Back to my earlier story. Um, after my first year at DePaul studying with Larry, um, there was no requirement for a recital for the first year masters there. But he was like, why don't you for the end of your project take some auditions? And there were two auditions open. 
one for the Pershing zone, which is in DC, and then one for the West Point, which is here in New York. I hadn't really done auditions before. It was my first foray really in the professional world. And I I did advance in the Pershings and then two weeks later, I didn't win though. And then two weeks later I had this audition at West Point and I won the job. Uh, so I ended my studies at DePaul and went to basic training and <laughs> joined the West Point band. So yeah, it's a great experience. Like these bands, um, these special bands or premier bands as they're called in some of the other services, it's a permanent assignment. So if you win a position, um, supposing you don't really mess up while in your time there, you can stay for your whole career, which is really great. It's a wonderful place to, to kind of like think about a lot of the things I've been thinking about since I've had the job, like how can you relate to an audience? Like where, where should I be playing? Who is music for? Like all of these kind of big questions, you know, when you have a job like this, you're playing for all kinds of people for many different reasons. And my, my ideas about uh, performance have changed a lot in in a positive way for me uh, since I've had this job. The path I was on studying, it was definitely more like the conservatory tradition type thing, even though my teachers were more open-minded. I think most people are like, practice, 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 audition, audition, get a job and then keep practicing forever and have this one like orchestral job or something, you know, like that was kind of the path that a lot of my peers were on and myself as well, even though I was kind of straying into other fields a little bit here and there when I was younger. Um, But, you know, I, even though this, the job at West Point, like many of the other military jobs, it requires a lot of technique and skill to play certain types of music that we play frequently like marches or even transcriptions right um there's also these opportunities and many times where we're playing pops concerts or we're playing very simple songs for a funeral or a ceremony or something and those are times where you feel like okay like I'm doing this thing that I have trained for I'm playing this thing that's like very simple to me but it almost feels like this simple thing is like one of the most impactful things that I do during the course of the month or the week or the year or whatever, you know, and, you know, we've played in a lot of different places playing. I had experiences playing like in a bunch of middle school gymnasiums and, or playing on national TV for the 4th of July fireworks. And, you know, both of them are really exciting, but I have felt like more of a connection with an audience when we're doing something with like a fifth grade audience, for instance, and they just really want to talk to you and they really want to know more. And I have felt that I'm, I have appreciated that kind of uh, playing more since I've had more time in the band than the traditional, like on the stage kind of, you know, training that I had been going towards um, this whole time. And not to say like that I, think that that's wrong or anything it's just like this is the direction that I have liked to go in and have appreciated since I've been in that job yeah you know especially playing for kids is always so interesting because they they do get so sort of absorbed and for many of them maybe it's the first time they even saw something like that you know so it becomes almost like a spectacle (laughs) to them do you have any advice for those who are looking to go into this kind of career path like what was the was the training very vigorous and and you know what was the audition process like is the training vigorous so basically training. And I mean, I can only speak from my personal experience. Um, I didn't find the training that difficult. It's more of a, 
mentally you just, you know, had to kind of keep at, at it for a while. Cause it's for me, again, it was like very different than anything else I had ever done in my life. And so just to kind of keep, keep at it and, uh, you know, think about what was at the other end of the training, uh, was, was the biggest, um, struggle for me. And obviously it worked out. I made it through and everything, but yeah, I know like on, on movies and stuff, they're always like, showing people like running and passing out from being exhausted and stuff. And like, you do get tired, but like, I do think like the mental side of it is probably more taxing than the physical because everyone's training together and, you know, everyone gets tired. So it's not like you're going to be the only one not tired. And then the audition process is very much like any other orchestral audition or anything you know there's a list of music to prepare and there's multiple rounds um the one thing that that we do differently in the in our band is that we have like a pre-screening round um so people can send in their applications resumes recordings and um we usually only bring like between five and ten people to the live audition because we pay for them to come to the audition at that point we'll basically have two or three rounds, usually two where the first round, and then we get down to maybe two or three people in a final round. And the first round is behind a screen, just like most many people are used to. And then the second round is, um, open to the panel. Like everyone can see who's there. And we often like, we'll play with those candidates, maybe like a quartet or quintet or something. We'll play with them. Or in some cases, like we had, um, people, uh, play, E-flat excerpts with the piccolo player or something like that. So chances to play with some members of the ensemble in that second round. And then there's an interview round after that. We'll talk to the panel, maybe talk to the leaders of the organization. And and then at that point, we kind of try to make a decision on of all the great people that are there who is going to win an audition that day. And it's always been great. There's so many wonderful players that have auditioned and it's always a difficult decision, as I'm sure any panel struggles with. You know, I love this whole pre-screening idea because it's, although it might seem, you know, difficult for those auditioning in some way, I mean, I think it's better than dozens and dozens of people flying somewhere and, and auditioning and, and the same person's going to get chosen in the end anyway, right? And I think that that's one of the big struggles of, of the orchestral audition circuit is that I know so many people who went to so many cities and they just never stop until they get a job. And it's just a lot of travel, a lot of money invested. And it'd be almost better sometimes to just know right away, okay, that one's not going to be for me because <laughs> I didn't make it past. One of the things that I like about it too, it's, it, I mean, even though, yeah, we're inviting less people to the live audition, like at least, yeah, at least we are, we are inviting those people. We're bringing them there. They're not incurring any cost. And so in some ways it's maybe, it can be a little bit more inclusive too, because people that maybe don't have the money to travel to an audition or, you know, maybe younger people too that don't necessarily have a job yet would have a chance to audition, which that's another thing. Cause like the, the cutoff age for auditioning, I think it's like 34, 35 right now. So most of our candidates are young and maybe don't have the income to, to travel to a bunch of auditions yet. Well, that's one of the challenges that you just finished university and you're told you need to go get an orchestra job and you're like working part-time while you still try to practice full-time and it's you're trying to pay rent and you're like well wait a minute how am I going to fly to all these cities you know so it becomes quite a challenge so well this was wonderful talking with you today is there anything else you'd like to share before we before we wrap up 
I don't think so. I think we talked about the album. I'm really looking forward to hearing if clarinetists like it. You know, like right now, I feel like I'm getting a lot of people like world music people listening to it and stuff. So that'd be interesting to hear the clarinetist perspective on the music, if they like it or not. Because uh, I know we we tend to gravitate towards a lot of the same pieces, you know, like those big pieces that we want to hear. And I was taking a risk on some of this new music, hoping <laughs> that people would like it too. <laughs> well, do check it out. It's available on Spotify, Apple Music, and uh, other streaming platforms like that. I know that that's the way that 95% of people who are listening these days are going to listen but uh, are there also cds available for those select few out there who might want them yes through my website um you can either contact me and send it or you can buy individual tracks or any of those options are available as well great i'll put a link to that on the website at uh, clarinet.com thank you so much Kristen, for coming on the podcast today and if you're listening to the podcast on apple podcasts or spotify or any other free platform the episode will end here but if you are a supporter of the podcast on Patreon for as little as $1 per month, you would access to a few extra extended questions in just a moment. So thank you, Kristen, so much for coming on. And for those coming on to the lightning round with us, I'll see you in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. At this point in the episode, I always like to invite listeners to send in their questions, feedback, guest requests, anything else, even just to say hi. And you can do this at hello at clarinet.com. And I do take the time to reply to every message that comes in. Um, this week, there was actually two questions, but I'll address one this week and then one next week. Um, the first one was from Ron, and he was asking, uh, what mouthpiece do I use and which facing? So um, my mouthpiece decision is partly influenced by my reed decision, and that means that I've gone with the uh, Vocalese series from Bakun. Of course, I also work for Bakun, and I had the chance to try all four of their models, the uh, R, G, H, Z, and also the, the CG, I guess. Um, I did a bunch of blind testing, and for me personally, I found that I really like the R model. Um, partly because it pairs so well with the Leger reeds, which I also like to use. I find it's hard to find a mouthpiece that's actually working really well with synthetic reeds. And uh, the nice thing about the Leger series, uh, sorry, the Vocalese series, is it was designed to work with Leger because Hawkins, who is one of the designers of the mouthpiece, um, is also a Leger artist and he has designed the mouthpiece really to work effectively with those. Um, as far as the R model, it is the most closed and it doesn't have quite the projection of some of the more open ones. So, um, however, I'm not doing a lot of stuff these days that requires a ton of projection. So I really go with the R because I love the ease of articulation that I can get out of that, even on the high notes. I remember when I first tried it out with some student in the room, he had a really high passage on the paper of some piece and uh, I was expecting to take, you know, one or two stabs at it before I really was happy with it <laughs> to demonstrate. And uh, it just came out on the first try and I, I had to actually stop and go, wait a second, let me let me try that again. And it was, you know, second time was great, too. So anyway, I love the R facing from Bakun Vocalese because it just has such immediate response uh, throughout the range and also works great with the Leger reeds. So thank you so much, Ron, for sending in that question. And uh, if you have any other questions for me, like I said, send me a message at hello at clarinet.com. As I said a moment ago, thank you so much to those who are supporting the show on Patreon, but you can now support also directly at clarinet.com join. So you can check that out, listen to the extended ad-free episodes, and even post some comments in there as well if you'd like and interact a little bit with me and other listeners as that community grows. So thank you again, of course, to our sponsors for making the show possible, and I look forward to seeing you next time on the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. 
Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Crowder Freddy, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot -E com. The new Bakun Q-series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at BakunMusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé Clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at BakunMusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout.